Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Avi Cooper. Hey, Avi. Hey, Hannah. And Tony Brew. How are you guys doing? We are doing fantastically. I speak for Avi now, I guess. <laughs> Couldn't be. Uh, <laughs> we're doing great. <laughs> and today, we have a discussion about the association between atrial fibrillation and pulmonary embolism. So probably most of us have learned that a PE can cause right heart strain and lead to atrial fibrillation. But Tony, today you wanted to explore the reverse. Is that right? That's exactly right. I mean, for a long time, basically, since I learned about AFib and PE, I heard about this idea that, oh, you know, a pulmonary embolism can cause atrial fibrillation. But I began to wonder a few years ago why AFib isn't considered a risk factor for PE, basically, like you said, the reverse, right? Because if the right atria is beating chaotically, why wouldn't this predispose to the formation of a thrombus and ultimately an increased risk of embolization of that thrombus to the pulmonary arteries? But this is not something I talk about on rounds in a patient who has a new PE. I say, let's do age-appropriate cancer screening and look for that DVT. But I don't say, oh, could they have you know undiagnosed AFib? And I wanted to know, am I wrong in thinking it might be a risk factor? I feel like I'm just realizing that the right atrium is like my most <laughs> underappreciated chamber of the heart. I have never thought about this. <laughs> have you, Avi? I haven't either. And I, I agree, Hannah, like you said at, at the outset, I I felt like... I was perfectly comfortable with the vector of the arrow from <laughs> PE to AFib. No problem there, right? I mean, it's on the differential for new AFib is maybe, you know, could they have acute right heart strain from a PE? But I definitely have not thought about it in the reverse. And and yeah, I'm like, but why didn't I? Yeah, so let's think about it. <laughs> Thank you for doing it, Tony. Okay. Well, you know, we should begin, you know, I, I would think with some data supporting that there actually is an association between atrial fibrillation and PE, particularly any data on the direction of causality that AFib can cause PE, right? So what, what can you share with us? I think as the both of you can imagine, we only have observational data, right? Nobody is going to do a study where they randomly allocate patients to induced AFib and then like follow them to see if they get a PE. So what we have instead are lots of cohorts of patients who have AFib, but no prior VTE. And the question is whether or not, if you follow those patients, they are at increased risk of VTE in more specifically pulmonary embolism. And so I'll offer three studies to give a sense of this um, strength of association. So the first is a study from 2015 that looked at about 11,000 patients with newly diagnosed AFib and no evidence of VTE at baseline. And subsequent VTE events were reported and compared with a group of patients who didn't have AFib. And so the incidence of VTE was higher in the AFib group, even after they adjusted for a bunch of comorbidities like sex and age. And the hazard ratio they found was 2.2. So not particularly high, but it was there. So the second study is also from 2015, and it looked at 1,600 patients with AFib. And the rates of subsequent VTE, again, were assessed, just like in the first study. And AFib increased the risk of PE, but here the hazard ratio was 11.8, so quite a bit higher. And interestingly, and we may come back to this, the hazard ratio for DVT was also elevated, but less so. It was only 6.2. And I think this next piece adds a little bit of credence to the sort of idea of causality because the risk of VTE was particularly increased in the first six months after the AFib was diagnosed. All right, so one final study. This one is from 2021, and it's the largest. It's got about a half a million patients with AFib, and they, again, didn't have a history of previous VTE, ischemic stroke, or pulmonary hypertension, and they were compared with 900,000 population controls. 
And so they looked at the VTE rates and they were, again, higher among the AFib patients during the first 30 days after an AFib diagnosis. And here the hazard ratio was somewhere in the middle, 6.6 for men and 7.6 for women. So there are actually a lot of studies showing this association. And again, what they're trying to do with these studies is look at patients who haven't had a diagnosis of VTE before to try to get a sense of the direction potentially of causality if there is one. Now, I'll offer that there are at least a few studies that don't show a link. So it's not like every single study is in the same direction. But I think the preponderance of cohort studies that we have available says, yeah, there's something there. Hmm. Okay, so a strong possible connection between AFib and PE, more so compared to the association between AFib and DVT. So it seems like there are probably a lot of confounders between the type of person who is in the first six months of just having had or the first 30 days of just new AFib. So are there other sort of supporting evidence or mechanistic evidence? Yeah, there is. And I think one of the other pieces of evidence I found that I thought was interesting was autopsy studies. And so many of these are from a few decades ago. So for example, in 1969, Hans Eberg reported that a right atrial thrombus was present in 8.7% of patients with AFib compared with 1.1% of patients who don't have AFib. So he kind of confirmed that, yeah, you can form a thrombus in the right atrium, right? So there's that piece of it. And he showed that AFib patients have a higher risk of it compared to those who don't. And there's another autopsy study, this one from 1951, that looked at 51 patients with mitral stenosis and atrial thrombosis. And 24 of the 51 had clot in the right atrium, again showing, yes, you can form clot in the right atrium. And in 27 cases, there were pulmonary emboli or pulmonary infarcts. And 16 of them had right atrial thrombus. And really kind of key is in eight of them, there was no other source of PE identified suggesting that maybe that right atrial thrombus was the source. And then if you sort of fast forward, we actually have contemporary echo studies. We don't have to sort of wait for death and autopsy. We have echo studies that similarly show that the right atrium is in no doubt a site of thrombus formation. So but before we move on, I just want to go back to this idea of sort of not every patient who has a PE has a DVT, because this is often used as um, sort of support for what we're talking about. And you guys have probably heard this, but only about 50% of patients with PE are found to have a DVT. And so that suggests that either all the DVTs have sort of flung up to the pulmonary arteries, or a DVT wasn't actually the source of the PE. And perhaps you're suggesting the right atrium could be a place where that thrombus could form? That's exactly what I'm suggesting. Okay, but I I can understand, based on what you're saying, why atrial fibrillation could cause a thrombus to form in a fibrillating right atrium, which could then be a source of a pulmonary embolism. And it sounds like there's autopsy and more modern echo studies to support that notion. But you mentioned earlier that atrial fibrillation is also associated with DVT. Now, to me, unless there's going to be some sort of common confounding thing like severity of illness or something like that, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. So why would that be? Well, I do think that part of it probably is confounding it. You know, Hannah mentioned it earlier that the kind of patient who has new AFib, they probably have similar risk factors for new VTE. But an important question for another reason, and it's that it allows us to explore more broadly why AFib is associated with atrial thrombus formation just more generally. So I always assumed that it was like chaotic atrial contraction and then stasis, like stasis of blood flow swirling around in, you know, I always thought of a left atrium. That like sort of chaotic 
sort of static blood flow is undoubtedly a factor. And as you said, we think about it more in the left atrium, but it's happening in the right atrium as well. But remarkably, and what was news to me when I began reading about this, is that atrial fibrillation is another condition where all three arms of Virchow's triad are at play. Not only does it lead to stasis, but AFib is also a condition associated with endothelial injury, and it's also considered a hypercoagulable state. Aha! Virchow's triad! (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm interested. Tell me more. I will happily tell you more after a short break from our sponsor. Green Chef is a meal kit company whose goal is to make eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. One of the most challenging things about being a resident sometimes is when you're in a full day of primary care clinic and you are spending all day counseling people on how to eat healthier and all these strategies and smart goals to try and improve their health by eating better. And then you're so busy and stressed during lunchtime that you just eat a a protein bar and then get back to work. And so one of the things that I really liked about Green Chef, I made one of their 10 minute lunches. And so each week they give you two convenient, nutritious lunch recipes that you can make actually in 10 minutes. I'm kind of slow, so it took me about 15, but with pretty minimal cooking and was just amazing for being on the go and in the middle of a busy primary care day. You know, and I took advantage of the dinner meal plan and I gotta say all the recipes I made were delicious, easy to make. Uh, I think my favorite was the chicken with garlic charred rice. It was awesome. And Green Chef can reduce your food waste by up to 38% versus grocery shopping. And that was kind of my experience. And Green Chef offers options for every lifestyle. Keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, and even gluten-free. So go to greenchef.com slash curious60 and use code curious60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash curious60. 60 and use code curious60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. And now back to the episode. Okay, so I think we can all agree that there's some degree of stasis um, in uh, atrial fibrillation, both in the right atrium and the left atrium. So there's a lot of complexity here, and so we won't go into it in too much detail. But you know, regarding hypercoagulability, you know, this can result from activation of the coagulation cascade or increased platelet reactivity or impaired fibrinolysis. There's actually a lot of different ways that can happen. And it turns out that AFib actually causes abnormalities in all of these systems. And as I said, it would be too much to cover all the mechanisms, so I'll just give the two of you a little bit of a taste for some of the abnormalities that have been identified in AFib. First, there are a number of studies showing elevated levels of fibrinogen in D-dimer in patients with AFib, and this is probably the most common finding. And in fact, if you do an echo, and Avi, you probably see this in some of the TEs that are done in the ICU, you'll see this spontaneous echo contrast in the atria patients with atrial fibrillation. And what that spontaneous echo contrast is showing us is actually RBC aggregation. And remember that the thing that leads to RBC aggregation is fibrinogen. And so we're actually seeing, when we see that smoke, that spontaneous echo contrast, we're seeing the fibrinogen cross-linking the RBCs. And that fibrinogen is part of that hypercoagulable state. So similarly, there's markers of endothelial injury, like von Willebrand's factor that are elevated in AFib. And there's just like tons and tons of different ways that the hypercoagulable state is, is augmented and endothelial injury. But I just think there's, there's no question that it's there. To what extent it leads to the DVTs that we may see in these patients, that may be a little bit more up for argument. 
And you know, it's interesting because so it sounds like atrial fibrillation can predispose to thrombosis in the body in general through many purported mechanisms. And you've provided some pretty interesting data suggesting a link, maybe even a causal link, between AFib and pulmonary embolus. But you know, when I think about if someone has a stroke and we do a stroke evaluation, we look for atrial fibrillation, right, as like an underlying cause. But when someone has a has a PE, we don't necessarily go hunting for AFib. Right. Maybe we should. I mean, and even sort of taking that a step further, the right atrium, you know, there's a slower velocity of blood there compared to the left side. And you might expect more thrombus to form in the right atrium compared to the left atrium. So what's going on there? What gives? I do wonder a little bit if if some of this is muddied by the fact that most patients with diagnosed AFib should be on anticoagulation, ideally. And then the group of people who aren't are going to have a lot of other potentially either vascular risk factors or have really low risk factors for clotting. Yeah, either you're on anticoagulation or you're not on it because you have like maybe comorbid diseases that that make it difficult that are confounders. But Hannah, that, that is probably part of the reason that the connection between AFib and PE may be not as strong as we you might otherwise expect. But this also, this idea of anticoagulation may explain why the risk seems to be high soon after diagnosis because you know those patients aren't on anticoagulation yet. But I'll say that even accounting for this, PE is far less common than systemic embolization. And that just fits because that's we think about systemic embolization, more specifically stroke in these patients. We don't think about PE. And one reason for this probably stems from the appearance of the right atrial appendage. And I will be completely honest, full disclosure, I was not aware that there was such a thing as a right atrial appendage until I started reading about this topic. I don't remember that page in Netter showing me a right atrial appendage. I don't know. Am I totally, did I miss that day in anatomy or uh, like you guys totally on top of the right atrial appendage? It definitely doesn't get as much publicity as the left atrial appendage. I will say that. Okay. But no, I, I didn't really know about it either. I did not. I, if you had, I would have like thought that that was a made up body part. Exactly. That's what I thought too. Like, I didn't think it existed. Like the appendiceal appendix. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, they're just calling anything an organ these days. Exactly. Anything that's sort of like sort of hanging along, we'll just call an appendage. But here's the thing, you know, is, you know, not only does the RA have an appendage, just as with the LA appendage, it is in fact the most common site of thrombus formation. So it has a relevant role here. But it's also very, very different in appearance when you compare it head to head with the LA. It's broader, it's shallower, and it lacks recesses. And all of these things, along with probably a few other differences, all contribute to a lower risk of thrombus formation in the right atrium, because that is definitely the case. We see fewer thrombi in the right atrium than the left atrium, even in patients with AFib. And what about blood vessel size, right? Thinking about differences in the sort of the size of the blood vessels in the pulmonary circulation versus the cerebral circulation. I would think that the main pulmonary arteries are significantly larger than those, you know, headed to the brain. Does this affect the rates of symptomatic embolization that we might see, you know, a clinical stroke versus say someone who has a small PE? Yeah, I, I think it doesn't. I think the key word in what you just asked was symptomatic because in order to get a symptom, you really need to obstruct that artery. I assume in most cases completely, if not largely. And so you, you need a thrombus that's A, large enough to obstruct, and an artery that's not so big that it can't be obstructed. And so let me try to give you some numbers to get a sense for this. So most atrial thrombi are between 2 and 20 millimeters, though there are right atrial thrombi that have been reportedly as large as 35 millimeters, so they can get pretty large. And then to your point, Avi, the main pulmonary artery is 25 millimeters, and the subsegmental pulmonary arteries are around 6 to 7. 
Okay, so 25, that, that's a big artery. And how big are the cerebral arteries, like for strokes? Yeah, right, because if this hypothesis is going to work, the PA has got to be significantly larger than the cerebral arteries, and that turns out to be the case. So if we look at the middle cerebral artery as an example, it's between three and three and a half millimeters. And again, compare that to the main PA, 25. Even the segmental PAs are six to seven. So the cerebral arteries are quite a bit smaller. They're like a thousand red blood cells across. <laughs> <laughs> Although if you're macrocytic, you know, who knows? That's right. But you also, you know, like you said, Tony, about the symptomatic part, if you think about, you know, someone who has a small peripheral, you know, PE, you know, way out in the lung, in someone with a new diagnosis of AFib, that may be very easily clinically silent versus say someone who has a stroke, you lose any part of the brain, right? It's you're, you're going to potentially become symptomatic. So I could see why you would see a difference there too. I think that's exactly right. So I, I think it really ultimately is a combination of the right atrial appendage doesn't predispose as well to thrombus formation. And then when those thrombi do ultimately go to the pulmonary arteries, it's exceedingly unlikely it's going to include a main pulmonary, even unlikely to cause uh, obstruction of a subsegmental or a segmental pulmonary artery. And then if it obstructs a more distal artery, those are often asymptomatic or have minor symptoms that are otherwise missed. Yeah. Although I also wonder about like the rate of CTEF, chronic thromboembolic yeah. pulmonary hypertension, like if you, if you truly are an AFib for all that long. Yeah, it's a good question. The other thing I wonder that like about teasing apart the role of the fibrillation itself and like the stasis of the right atrial appendage itself is um, a flutter. Mm. It's because I imagine that the right atrial appendage would not be fluttering as much as opposed to fib where we think of like these impulses coming from everywhere. But it doesn't seem like that's necessarily teasable in the observational data that we have. Yeah, I'd have to go back, but I think most of the data... I, actually, I don't want to speculate because uh, I don't know whether or not the data is if these cohorts include both patients with fib and flutter or if it's just atrial fibrillation. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention? You know, there's one other thing I came across, and you know, maybe I shouldn't be surprised by this, but the CHADS VAS score predicts future PE in patients with AFib, right? And it's that same line that's sort of just pointing up and to the right. And, you know, in some ways, I thought this is a kind of a cool demonstration of the potential validity of this causal hypothesis, because I don't think there's anything that we've talked about here that is proof. I think, you know, the fact that the right atria generate thrombi is really, you know, compelling. But these cohort studies, it's really hard to know what to make of them, because it doesn't really confirm the direction of causality. But I will say this, I, when I have a new patient with PE, I do ask uh, the team, hey, is this guy have a history of atrial fibrillation? And I, I don't put them on a Holter monitor necessarily, but I, I have that in my mind as a risk factor. Very cool. Thank you so much for teaching us, Tony. Do you have any take-home points before we wrap up? Yeah, a, a couple. So first, multiple studies demonstrate the association between AFib and PE, but I will admit that the direction of causality is almost certainly bilateral, and the direction towards PE, I think, is less certain. Atrial fibrillation is associated with all three arms of Virchow's triad. So there's stasis, there's endothelial injury, and there's hypercoagulability. There you go, Hannah. And pulmonary embolism is less likely than systemic embolization in patients with AFib. And, and this is likely related to the anatomy of the right atrial appendage and to the diameter of the downstream vessels that are affected. Very, very cool. That wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. Physicians and healthcare professionals can earn CME and MOC credits from VCU Health just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. 
And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.